Hello, good people. I'm so glad you are back with me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I have something very interesting to share with you. And it came from the Rebel Wisdom Channel, which just a few days ago, or maybe about a week ago, published a video featuring Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay, and Helen Pluckrose. Now you remember that trio of characters from about a year or so ago when they did that hoax paper thing that exposed the fatuousness of the social science journal publication business. That was great fun. I really liked what they did. Very mischievous and mischief for a serious cause is my favorite kind of mischief. So when I saw their names on the Rebel Wisdom channel, I thought I had to go over there and see what new mischief this trio is up to. Well, it turns out that what they're doing is they're working on projects designed to get people to talk to each other across ideological divides and political divides and all that. And that's great because like Jordan Peterson says, we need to talk to each other or else we'll fight with each other. And I prefer the talking. I'm sure you do too. So that's all good stuff. Now, in the course of this video, it's a pretty long video, and there's a number of other, there's a couple of other people in it besides those three, and David Fuller interviews everyone, and um, so it's quite a nice length video, but what I want to focus on is just a small segment of the interview that David Fuller did with Peter Bogosian, because Peter Bogosian said some stuff that has just had my brain kind of worrying about it for several days. And so I want to run it by you. Okay, so he said that he did an exercise in his classroom in university. And what he would do is he drew a line on the board and he divided the line like into segments and he had 100, 90, 80, 70. These represented percentage points. And what he wanted to ask his class was, what percentage of the things that you believe about the world, and the first question is just about like your general facts that you believe about the world, what percentage of them do you think are true? And then people would tell him their percentage that they thought were true, and he would mark every student's answer on the graph so that on the line so that he graphed their responses. Then he did the same thing, he said, he made another line, and he asked them about their moral beliefs and their religious beliefs. Now, he didn't make it clear whether he put the moral and religious beliefs on the same line. It really doesn't matter because the rest of the conversation, he focuses on moral beliefs, and it's what he says about moral beliefs that I really want to focus on, too. So what he said was, that when he graphed the students' confidence in that their beliefs were true, the confidence that they had in their moral and religious beliefs was higher than the confidence they had in their general beliefs, their we might call factual beliefs. All right. Then, after saying that, Peter Bogosian told David Fuller, now I'm going to read his exact words. He said, the exact opposite should be the case, right? That the beliefs for which you have less evidence, you should hold them in less confidence for those beliefs. They should be commensurate. 
So we've miscalibrated our beliefs. And he went like this, we've miscalibrated our beliefs. And our belief calibration unit should be higher for the unevidenced beliefs that are moral. But in fact, that is not the case. Okay. Now, what he's saying here is that we should have less confidence in our moral beliefs because we have less evidence for them and we should have higher confidence in our general factual beliefs because we have evidence for them. In fact, he called the moral beliefs unevidenced beliefs, meaning he doesn't think there's evidence for them. And I, I just, I want to point out here, and I'm not, I, I don't want to make too much of this point, that in this, these couple of sentences, the burden of which is to tell us that we should hold moral beliefs as having, as having no evidence for them and as being of low confidence, he has used the word should four times. Now, I know it's possible to use the word should and not be making a moral claim. For example, you can say, you should use a metric wrench on that bolt right there. But this sounds to me like he is actually making a moral claim, a statement about what is right and what is wrong, what we should do, and he is buttressing that moral claim by the statement that moral claims are not things we can have much confidence in, nor is there much evidence for them. So I'm just gonna let that stand as it is and go on to the rest of their conversation. Okay, so now David Fuller is going to ask Peter Bogosian a question. And the question he asked is, what have you changed your mind about? So Peter Bogosian thinks about what he's changed his mind about. And the first example he comes up with of changing his mind is that he used to think breakfast was the most important meal of the day, but now he is intermittent fasting. Okay, so what level of belief is that? Is that a belief about fact? Or is that a belief about morals? Then I think David Fuller realized that to be consistent with the last thing he had just said, we need to see if we can get to a higher level. So David Fuller said, well, what about political or um, philosophical beliefs? And Peter Bogosian, who at first said, oh, I change beliefs all the time. I'm, I'm changing beliefs every day. He then said that he had changed his belief about capitalism, that he was worried about the environment. It looked like maybe capitalism was the Achilles heel in our society in dealing with our environmental crisis. And so he was rethinking capitalist values. All right, so remember he was talking about moral beliefs and now suddenly he mentions capitalist values. 
I kind of feel like maybe he's trying to sprinkle a little more pixie dust on this capitalist thing because I'm not sure what capitalist values exactly would be. But that's what he said. He's changed his mind about that. Then he says, the third thing he says is he's changed his mind about torturing a prisoner in the ticking bomb scenario. Okay, well, now we're getting, I think, maybe into the realm of morality. Not sure because it didn't say exactly why he changed his mind. We'll come back to that, those three answers he gave a little bit later. Now, a few, months, a few minutes later in the conversation with David Fuller, Peter Bogosian talked about his interest in, quote, helping people value the right things. Now, I just have to kind of question here, if he cannot marshal evidence for values, I'm not really sure how that would work. And how would you assess whether people are valuing the right things or not? If moral statements or moral beliefs, which would be judgments about right or wrong, if they cannot be, if you cannot have confidence in them. So I started to think <laughs> we're getting a little bit tangled up here and that maybe some stuff needs to be sorted out like what are morals what are values how are they related should we really hold our uh, values or moral beliefs more lightly than our facts and did peter bogosian's answers to david fuller demonstrate someone doing that thing that he said that we ought to do now as for values we live in a world of values um, Dietrich von Hildebrink said, we live in a realm of values and that our, our character, our virtues are actually formed by our encounter with and our response to values. Value is something that shines forth in the world. It shines forth from things like Paul Vanderclay talks about the glory of God. Things shine with value. There is value just in being itself. There is value in existence. But values also exist in many domains, like um, the virtues. When we see virtues in our own soul, we value them. We value virtue that we see in others. Uh, we value all created things. They all have value just by virtue of the fact that they exist although sometimes I wonder about mosquitoes. We value man-made things. We value the talents and accomplishments that we have or that others have. So value is everywhere. It's all around us and we're constantly responding to it and we are supposed to respond to it. Value calls forth a response. We have a duty to respond properly to the value that is around us. There are intrinsic values, things that have value in themselves. There are instrumental values, things that are good for something that are means to an end. And then there are values that are in between the intrinsic and instrumental. Like for example, friendship is a value in itself. It has intrinsic value. 
But if you have enemies and you need allies, then your friends can be instrumental in helping you. So some things are both intrinsically valuable and instrumentally valuable. Val one thing about values is they always exist in a hierarchy. Values are ranked and they're ranked within whatever domain they are in. So you would not um, be comparing, say, music and furniture. Um, but you would compare furniture to furniture, you would rank that, you would rank music to music, things like that. So for example, uh, we can say that Paul McCartney's song, Yesterday, is of greater value than the wheels on the bus go round and round. And we could say that the Warsaw Concerto is of greater value than Paul McCartney's Yesterday. And we could say that See, Antonin de Bourjac's New World Symphony is of greater value than the Warsaw Concerto. See, we can rank things in value. There are some things, however, that come out of the ranking because they are incomparable in their value. So we no longer put them, even bother to put them in the rank with everything else. We will say about them that they're in a class by themselves, it's in a class by itself because it's come out of the ranking, it surpasses the ranking. How we encounter all of these things, the value that's in the world and how we respond to it has to do with the virtue of justice that resides in our will. So it is the virtue of justice because remember justice has to do with doing, with giving to everyone what they owe doing our duty and therefore since we have a duty to respond to value then it's the virtue of justice now actually whether you believe in god or not the virtue the exercise of the virtue of justice in appreciating and and responding to the value that is in the world and is in yourself that virtue is actually part of the the duty that we owe to god so religion is the virtue of justice in accordance with our relationship with god and when we appreciate the value that is in created things all created things and in creation itself we're actually exercising that virtue because it's god who created them. And this applies to you whether you believe in God or not. It's still that same virtue of justice. It's actually a subset of religion. <laughs> okay, now that resides in the will. And once we have ascertained the value of something, once we have we have responded to its value. We can respond with appreciation. We can respond with gratitude. We can respond with reverence to some values. When we see virtue in people, we can respond with admiration and emulation. Those are responses to value. So when, whenever we are responding to a value, then in our response, another virtue is um, is developed within our soul and that is the virtue of practical wisdom so for example if i were to 
buy a piece of antique furniture because I valued the craftsmanship of it, but I didn't have the practical wisdom to know how to care for it. I would not have followed through on my proper response to the virtue or my proper response to the value. All right. So the um, practical wisdom is a virtue of the intellect. So our response to values comes with justice in our will and with practical wisdom in the intellect. Practical wisdom is also called prudence. So how is value related to morality? That's the censor judgment of right and wrong. Well, all moral judgments or beliefs occur within a recognition of value or in relation to value. So let's see if we can use some examples to try and tease this out. Now, I live in the Piedmont area of Georgia, and that is an area where it's at the very lowest foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And this Piedmont area has outcroppings of rock everywhere. So you're driving around and you might see in someone's yard a large thing. It looks like large boulders um, that are buried in the ground. And so it can make gardening or building here kind of dicey in some areas because of just this amount of rock that there is. And the um, some people use them very decoratively in their yard. So, you know, they may make a rock garden out of this rock, these rock outcroppings or something. But I want you to imagine that in one of these yards that has an outcropping of rock, there lives a geologist. He owns the house, he owns the yard, and he owns a geologist hammer. And one day he goes outside to the rock that is in his own yard, and he hits it with his geologist hammer, and he takes a sample of that rock. Now, here's the question. What is the moral status of what he did? Is it right or is it wrong? Now, how you are going to answer that is going to depend on how you see that act in relation to values that you have. If you value the right and freedom of a person to use their own property the way they want to, and you might also think about the value of him pursuing his own studies as a geologist, then you would probably say that what he did was perfectly fine there was no moral issue with it. But let's imagine now that our geologist goes down the street to his neighbor's yard, goes into his neighbor's yard without permission, goes to the neighbor's backyard where there's outcropping of rock, and uses his hammer and takes a sample of the rock from out of his neighbor's yard. Is the moral status of both of those acts the same and you would probably say no because he went into his neighbor's yard and took something without permission he trespassed his neighbor's property and he stole something from his neighbor and therefore 
the moral status of that act is that it was wrong. In some places, it might even be considered illegal and he could be prosecuted for it. Now, let's take our geologist to Vatican City to St. Peter's Basilica. And he is going to enter St. Peter's Basilica and he is going to visit the Pieta. And he's actually unhinged in his brain. So what he is going to do is assault the Pieta with his geologist's hammer and actually damage it and take some, make some pieces of it come off. And he is going to be, you know, arrested and, and it's going to be discovered that he's not in his right mind. But I don't want you to think about the fact he's not in his right mind right now. I just want you to assess without culpability, objectively, what is the moral status of what he did? Is it the same act as when he went into his neighbor's yard and took a sample from the rock in his neighbor's yard? Or is there something different about the moral status of this act that he did with the Pieta? Because from a purely physical standpoint, it's the same thing. It's hitting a piece of granite rock with a hammer. But in this case, of course, we're talking about a marble statue. Is it different? I think you would say, it's different. It has a different moral status because of the value of the Pieta. So you see how your, your uh, conception of the rightness and wrongness of something, the morality of it, is always tied up with value. Somebody might still be thinking, well, the real problem here is that he trespassed and he he and he damaged someone else's property that's really the root of the the root of the moral problem with this not the fact that it was the pieta okay think about this then you know sometimes somebody'll say oh the catholic church is so rich the catholic church has all this art at the vatican in Vatican City, they should just go ahead and sell all that art and they should give the money to the poor. They're too rich. They're not following Christ. He didn't have all that art. <laughs> all right. Well, let's say the Vatican does that. Let's say they put the Pieta up for auction and a bunch of billionaires bid on it and somebody bids $10 billion and they get the Pieta. They crate it up and they take it away. They put it in an airplane, they go about a mile above some rocky desert, push it out, smash it to smithereens. It's theirs now. Now it's the moral status of that act. Was it right or was it wrong? Bet you're going to say that it was wrong based on the value, based on the fact that they removed from the world something of value, right? Now, the prudential care for this thing is illustrated by what the church did or what the Vatican did after that attack by the geologist. Because what they did is they put a bulletproof acrylic glass case 
in front of the pietas so that nobody could get to it and damage it anymore. So their, their virtue of justice that recognizes the value of it followed through in practical wisdom, prudence, in caring for it and protecting it. Now the prudential care that we give things and we do this in a very natural way, the prudential care that we give things really reveals how we value them. Now, when I drive around my town, I see that we have, um, we have fire stations uh, scattered around the town. We have ambulances. We have emergency personnel. We have EMTs. We have all of this stuff that tells me that we value being able to provide for anyone who is injured or is in an emergency, we value caring for them. That, that prudential care, that, that um, those things that have been established to give care are an evidence of the value that we place upon human life and health. Now what I wanna do is tell you a little story so that you can see that sometimes if you want to ask a question about value, you can use prudential care that you would give something or are willing to give something as a way of discerning its value. So let me tell you this little story. The conversation that happens in this story really happened. Now I'm giving it a fictional setting that's different than what the original setting was, but the conversation is a real conversation that happened. Now what I want you to picture is a nice park and a summer afternoon, and there's a little lake in the park, and an older lady has a couple of little dogs with her, and she takes them for a nice walk around the lake. Then the dogs get tired and they're sleeping under a shade tree and nearby the shade tree there is a park bench and the lady sits down on the park bench. Shortly after she sits down, another lady comes along. This is a young mother and she has two little children in tow. Well, she recognizes the older lady, someone in the neighborhood that she's seen before. So they strike up a conversation and the young woman sits down on the park bench next to the older lady while her children go off to play on some playground equipment nearby. At some point, the young woman says to the older lady, do you have any children? And the older woman says, no, I do not have any children, but I do have these two little dogs over here. And she shows her the dogs. And she says, my husband and I love our little dogs just like you love your children. And the young mother just sort of laughs and she says, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> well, they go on and they continue their conversation. And her little children come up to her and, um, you know, every now and then they'll come and get near their mother and she'll pet on them or they'll get some water from her or something. And then they'll run back over and play on the playground equipment and how children go back and forth between their mother and something they're playing with. And after watching them do that a few times, the older woman picks up the thread of her 
conversation again and she says you see how you dote on your children and you enjoy their company and you like it when they come to you and you like watching them play she says that's just like the way it is with me and my husband with our dogs we we really do love our dogs just like you love your children and this time the young mother gives kind of a hard glance at the older woman and she says no you don't now the older woman decides to press the issue and she says yes we do i really think we love our dogs as much as you love your children we take them with us on vacations we buy them presents we buy them christmas presents and put christmas presents under the tree for them we take them to the doctor whenever they're sick we buy them special food and treats we, we treat them and we love them just like you love your children and this time the younger woman's voice is like steel no, you don't. And the older woman is taken back by the strength of the young woman's response. And she says, how do you know? How can you say that? And the younger woman says, matter of factly, because if my children were starving, I would kill your dogs and feed them to my children. <laughs> now you see, by following through the logic of what the prudential care would be in the situation the value then is exposed that the value of the children is far greater than the dogs because the older woman did not come back and say well if my dogs were starving i would kill your children and feed them to my dogs it made apparent what the real value is when we have moral problems we have them usually in in a certain set ways we fail to value something we should value we overvalue something we undervalue something or we have a conflict between two values uh, this is a real common problem you might have a man who values his career and well he should value his career because it is the means by which he cares for the needs of his family but if he values his career so much that he hardly spends any time with his family then he has a conflict of values and he needs to recalibrate how he is, how he, not the value itself, but how he is ranking those values. It's values that govern the application of prudence, the application of practical wisdom. And it's for the sake of practical wisdom that we even care about facts to begin with. The facts we believe only matter because of values we hold. We only care about changing our beliefs in these facts because of our values. Now let's illustrate this using Peter Bogosian's first example when he said that he had changed from eating breakfast to intermittent fasting. Now he could have said, I used to value my health and so I ate breakfast. I no longer value my health, and so I have stopped eating breakfast. But that's not what he did at all. He still has the same value. He still values his health, he values good nutrition. It's just that he's learned new information, new facts, that he is now incorporating into his practical wisdom, his prudence in how he cares for in response to this value of health and good nutrition. Let's talk about his second one, which was capitalism. And he talked about, remember he mentioned 
these odd things called capitalist values? Well, I don't think there are capitalist values. Capitalism is an economic system and it is designed supposedly to promote certain values, certain human values like freedom and the accumulation of wealth and various other values that we could think about, creativity, et cetera, that we have might want in society. But the capitalism is just an economic system. It in itself is not a value. It is used in pursuit of some other values. It's a tool. Perhaps it has value as a tool, but it doesn't have value in and of itself. So I think that probably Peter Bogosian still has the same values he always had. It's just that new facts are coming his way and causing him to recalibrate how he looks at capitalism in light of these facts. But I'll bet he still has the same values. He still wants the same things for people and for society that he wanted before. He's just not sure that capitalism is the way that you get there anymore. Okay, let's talk about that third one, torture. Now, he didn't say that he used to think torture was morally right. Now he thinks it's morally evil or vice versa. So I don't really know that there's been a change in his values. There may have, he may have thought, thought that torture was all right and now he has concluded that torture is morally evil and that would be a real change, a real change in moral value. However, it is also likely that the change that happened is on the level of facts where at some point he had a kind of consequentialist attitude regarding the torture issue that maybe he didn't really like torture but he thought he could make an exception in this case just for the greater value of saving a bunch of lives if some terrorist had hidden a bomb somewhere and um, they wanted to get the information out of him as to where the bomb was to save lives and so he maybe he didn't think that torture was right but in this instance that it would be okay and maybe what's changed is someone has given him information or he's read information that said that usually the information that you get from people when you torture them is not reliable or that we shouldn't torture people because if we torture people that when our guys get captured on the battlefield, they will be tortured and we will also corrode the general, um, the general, uh, framework of the entire of all the nations of the world within the Geneva Convention and we don't want to erode that because it just will create further problems down the line. So it may be that he made an actual moral change of value in this case or it may be on the level of fact but when he says that he changed on it he doesn't make it clear which it is. Now, I think that Peter Boghossian's values are actually very resistant to change. In spite of his claim that he made to David Fuller that he changes his mind about something nearly every day. And his values should be resistant to change. All of us should have our values quite resistant to change. Because, think about this. Let's say that you had a friend and your friend was just a fount of knowledge and it seemed like every day your friend had a new fact to share with you. 
probably would find that to be enjoyable. If you're the kind of person who likes new facts, you might find it to be annoying, but um, you wouldn't find that to be distressing. However, what if you had a friend who had new moral values all the time? Now, what would you think of that person? I don't think you'd think they were very reliable as a friend. You'd be quite suspicious of them, and you'd probably worry about what kind of person they were if their moral values were constantly changing. So you see, the, when Peter Boghossian's students did that graph for him on the board, or he grafted their responses on the board, and they showed that they had more confidence in their moral beliefs than in their assessment of facts, they were right. And I think Peter Boghossian is wrong about us holding our morals more lightly than facts, because I think facts change a lot and that our morals should not. You tell me what you think in the comments. Until we get together again, remember, treat yourself as if you are someone you are responsible for helping, because you are responsible. So am I. And together, we are making the world. Bye for now. Thanks so much for watching.